I grew up playing soccer. Uh, we played year-round, played for club soccer teams, and we would travel all over the state in these tournaments. And uh, there's a few games over the course of my soccer career growing up that really stick out that I remember. And one of them was against uh, probably what was considered the best team in the state at the time in the state tournament. And we had done pretty well in the tournament. We were moving our way up, and we had to face them. And our coach pulled us aside before this game. Now, it was a 100-degree day. I mean, just being outside was to be covered in sweat, and we're getting ready for this game. And our coach pulls us aside, and he says, all right, guys, you, uh, you've done well so far this season in this tournament, but this is the best team in the state. <laughs> and he said, you really don't have a chance of winning this game. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to control the ball as much as you can and just try to not let them get as many goals as possible. Now, what a pep talk. I mean, <laughs> think of a pep talk for a team going into game and just tell them, you're going to lose, okay? Just try not to lose too bad. And we got on the field that day, and before the game started, the guys of the team got around, and we said, wait a second. What is this? We can win this game. Let's, let's fight and play to win this game. We don't want to try to lose by the least amount possible. We want to win. And I'll tell you what. There was a fire put in us that day, and that was one of the most memorable games I remember in my childhood. And we played well. Probably the best soccer I remember that team playing that year. Now, we lost. We lost, but we only lost by one. And uh, I think one of the things that came out of that game, when you go into something half-hearted, there's no way to succeed. When you go into something just trying to get by, success is not what you will accomplish. And the Christian faith in many ways is no different. There's no such thing as one foot in and one foot out in the Christian faith. You can't go into the Christian faith thinking, well, we'll see if this works and then I'll get out when it's not working all that much. Or I'll depend on God, but when I really need something, when I really need a place to go to, there's other places I can depend. There's other ways I can get by. There are those who have given their life to Christ and submitted to him. And frankly, there are those who just haven't done that yet. Maybe they've started coming to church. Maybe they've joined particular Christian rituals. But if you've never actually surrendered and gone all in underneath Christ and his authority, that's not really what Christianity is. That doesn't mean that there is not a journey that every Christian's on of sanctification, of weeding out sin, of repentance, of growing and becoming more Christ-like and seeing transformation take place. And I'm telling you, I see this in our people all the time. It's one of my joys as a pastor to get to walk with people through transformation and see them become more like Christ. But there is a difference between a person who is on the journey of transforming and a person who is taking the title Christian by name only and really has nothing different about them, really has no surrender to Christ in their life at all. It's like they're just looking over the edge. They see Christianity at a distance, but they got one foot firmly planted in their old life, in the old world that they once were a part of, just kind of dabbling with the things of Christianity from a distance. And that's not Christianity. It just isn't. Today we continue through the series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through the Beatitudes. Now just a reminder, the Beatitudes are, there's eight Beatitudes that begin this Sermon on the Mount. This sermon that Jesus gave. And the Sermon on the Mount is considered, even by modern ethicists, one of the greatest, in fact the greatest, lecture on morality that's ever been given in the history of the world. No, nothing comes close to it. 
And it talks about the kingdom ethics. What ought to be true of you and me if we're going to call ourselves Christians, Christ ones? What should our life look like? How do we relate to God? How do we handle our finances? How do we relate to each other? How do we handle relationships? How do we forgive one another? What does mercy look like? These are all the things Christians major in. We set the record. We set the pace for all of that because we have divine revelation from Jesus very specifically through the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts with these eight Beatitudes, these eight blessing statements of what the blessed life looks like. Now, let me read them to us in, in full again. And I, I've been reading them every week because I think you have to hear the whole string of the Beatitudes to really be able to pick any of them out individually. The Beatitudes read this way. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's ours today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then he goes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now today we're on the sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now first things first. Let's just consider that statement as a whole statement for a, for a moment. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, have you ever thought about what it means to see God? I mean, just pause for a moment. Think of this statement. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you do this, if you are this, you will see God. The very thought of this verse ought to send a bit of a shiver down your spine. I got a feeling it doesn't at our first reading. But if you really pause and consider what he's saying, something ought to kind of be wrong in your spirit almost. It almost ought to cause a disharmony, a disjunction inside of you to think, wait a second, wait a second. I will see God the one true and living God, the triune God, the creator God, the God who is over all things, who sustains the universe by the word of his power, that God I will see in full? It can't be. One of the great tragedies of the modern day Bible reading is just that we don't consider a sense of awe and wonder at the reality of the scriptures we read and what they tell us. We browse through them and we go on with our day. Psalm 119, one of my favorite verses, I recite this often in my morning prayers. It says, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes. It's like we have spiritual blinders on that we can read this book, read something like that, that the pure in heart will see God and not have a sense of wonder and awe at the majesty of it all. How can this be true? We have to start there with a sense of wonder. When we look at Jesus' words if, if they aren't causing resonance in our hearts, something to beat harder, we've got to ask, why is the Spirit not producing that in us? What is causing this kind of just malaise in our heart? In Exodus 33, there's this scene with Moses. 
Moses has just got done pleading with the Lord on behalf of his people. He's got, just got done pleading and interceding on behalf of the people with God. And then after this conversation with God, Moses is speaking to God and he says, God, can I please behold your glory? And it's an interesting request. You know, Moses has already seen God move in so many ways. He's, you know, he saw God speak to him in the burning bush. He, he saw God deliver the ten plagues. He saw God deliver them through the Red Sea. I mean, consider that for a moment. What if you walked through a body of water and the water was stacked up on either side and you could look through and see the fish swimming? Moses did that. And yet here, a few months have passed. He's going through a hard season and he, he looks back to God, that same God who delivered him so many times. And he says, God, I want to see your glory. Will you allow your glory to pass before me? See, why did he want that again? He, he, see, he wanted this regular seeing of God. He, he never wanted to become dry in his seeing of God. And he hit a hard spot and he knew that if, if he could just see God again, if he could just see the glory of God again, then he could be renewed in his spirit. Then he had everything he needed to keep on the mission that God had given him. Let me just see you, God. It's amazing what God says to him. Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 23. Moses says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. I will proclaim before you my name, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot, Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Bless, uh, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. What a fascinating passage. Moses in the Old Testament, many years before the Christ would ever come and, and clean the human soul and give opportunity to see God, God says, I will let you see me, but not my face. In other words, there's a place where you, even Moses, cannot come yet. There's much that you can see, but there's some still waiting for a future day. Are you getting a sense for the weight of this beatitude? It's the, it's the sixth beatitude, but I think in this sixth beatitude, we have almost the pinnacle. We have the centerpiece of what they are all are building to and flow out from. Are you getting a sense for the, the mystery and the awe of what it means to see God? And is it stirring something in you yet? If not, honestly, you can pause the video. This is a video sermon this week again. You can pause it and ask God, God, would you stir it in me? I want to feel it. I want to feel it in my fingertips. I want to long for it. Because we're going to see God. Now let's go to the beginning. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, first we recognize that the blessing of God that this beatitude is about is about the heart. It's got to do with something inside of you. It's not about the things you do though that flows out of the heart. It's not about the things you say or the things you become or the things you achieve or your popularity or the things you know. It's not those with a great mind. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, we tend to think of the heart in our modern day as the seat of the emotions. That's usually when we refer to the heart, we're thinking about kind of the emotional part of the human experience. But that's not the biblical vision of what the heart is. The biblical vision of the heart 
is that it, 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 it kind of contains the entirety of the whole inner man or the inner woman. It captures all of you. Within it certainly are the emotions, but the heart is the seat of the physical, the spiritual, and your mental life. We tend to speak of it just in terms of our emotions, but it really captures all of you. It's what you think. It's what you're motivated by. It's what drives you. It's all of you. So when the Bible speaks of your heart, it's speaking of everything that composes your inner being and your inner life. It's the root system of the tree that is your life. We think of a few passages where Jesus speaks about this. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. He says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So what you say are words that are rooted somewhere from inside of you, and they're rooted in your heart. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. He's saying, look, the problem is not the things you say. The problem is that those things are rooted in a broken root system, which is your heart. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 34. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, if you have a life that's producing bad fruit, it's because it's got a rotten root system. If you've got a life that's producing godly, biblical, Christ-centered fruit, it's because it's got a healthy root system. And the root system of your life is your heart. Now, everything that we do and everything that we say is rooted in the concept of the heart. And one of the great problems of Christianity today, and I want to take this in a bit of a sidestep and help kind of maybe exegete culture a little bit for us, draw meaning out of what we see taking place in culture. Sometimes in the modern church, we get this idea, and we've stolen it from culture, that if we could just transform society, if we could just get the right laws in place, if we could get the right leadership in place, and and they could construct the right laws, and we could get the right education in place, then we could create a just society. Then we could fix the problems in the world that we have. But biblically speaking, there's no amount of laws that can create a moral people. If, if you want to fix people, and this is what Christians want to do, by the way. So Christians are after a just society. <laughs> Not for the purpose of the just society, but because the purpose we want to glorify God and bring about his kingdom with us wherever we go. If you want that to take place, we have to care deeply about people's hearts. Because you can try to put another law in place to guardrail people from doing wicked things, but until you cause the heart to be changed of a person... All you're going to do is shift one level of wickedness for another level of wickedness. The heart needs to be transformed to people. This is why Christians are so adamant about evangelism. We're so adamant about that everything we do is Christ-saturated and Christ-centered. We want God-honoring laws so that we can point people towards the king who is the king over every legal system. We want God-honoring people so that they can go out and proclaim to people their need for their heart to be transformed. We don't just want to fix brokenness with a new set of laws, with a new set of rhythms and regulations and rituals. We want to fix broken root systems in the heart of people and see them become Christ worshipers because then godly fruit comes out. That's the hope for humanity. As I'm on that topic, I want to just take a moment, and I know this was addressed early on in this video, but this week, once again, I feel like I'm on repeat, and I have been like this for a couple years now, 
addressing wickedness and evilness that comes up. This week in the, in the death of George Floyd, I found myself at a loss for words. I found myself once again almost stunned. And as a Christian, we have to lament over this. Some of the resources both Pastor Kenson and I have been sending out have been trying to help us find a place to lament well and to hold a righteous anger over evil when we see it. Racism is evil, pure and simple. It's evil because it's an affront to God who made every person in the image of God. Now, what's the hope for this? Do we need better laws? Do we need better systems? Yes, 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 amen, we do. What we need most, what we need most is Christ-centered people sharing the love of Christ and transforming people's hearts because out of the heart the mouth speaks. Evil, wicked, vileness, it all flows out of the heart. And until hearts are changed, this is the message of the gospel, until hearts are changed, we're trading one level of wickedness for another level of wickedness. We have to point people towards Jesus. And those who need Jesus need to depend on Jesus like they've never depended on him before because he gives comfort, he gives hope, and he meets us in our brokenness. And before I move on from that, I want to repeat here what I've shared in a video earlier this week. That for those who need to have a place to pray and to find comfort, I want you to know this is what the church excels in. If there's any place where God's people can, if there's anywhere where anybody can come and find hope and find comfort and find meaning and purpose and have questions answered and frankly just have a place for people to put their hands on each other or over digital, put your hands over each other and pray with each other, weep with each other, not have the answers together and just sit there in silence together, it's the church. This, this is that place. And I want to encourage you, if you need to connect with somebody, if you need to reach out and just pray with someone, don't be silent. Don't let that weight carry on your shoulders. The church needs to lean in on each other. So reach out to me, reach out to Pastor Kenson, one of the deacons, to a friend in the church. And we get through seasons like this by being the church. The psalmist says this in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He attaches creating a, a, a clean heart, scrubbing the heart. It's almost like he saw his heart as dirty, like it was a root system that had dirt on it and it couldn't grow. Creating me a clean heart. And the other side of that, it's almost like a synonym for it, is renew my spirit within me. Those two things were almost the same. It's like he's saying, God, would you revamp my inner being? Would you cleanse my roots in order that I might more surrender to you? Why? Because God... Because the psalmist knows that all of us have the tendency to deviate. We all have the tendency to get a little off track. And what we need to say regularly is, God, cleanse my heart. Renew my spirit. Bring me right back to you. Jesus always emphasized the heart, didn't he? Time and time again, he emphasized the heart. He was always concerned with people's hearts rather than their actions. The actions were important, but he was always interested in what caused the actions. And that was the heart. The Pharisees are a great example of this. The way Jesus always spoke to the Pharisees, he was always saying, look, you do all the stuff that looks right on the outside. You're going through the actions. You tithe mint and rue. You're in the places where you're supposed to go saying the prayers you're supposed to pray. But I, Jesus, see your heart. And I see that it's wicked all the way through. It's selfish all the way through. And no amount of outward actions of religious obligation is going to cleanse your heart. You need a heart surgery. You need a heart transplant. 
Matthew 15, 8 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, one of the terrible dangers that the modern church is in grave danger of is forgetting that Christianity is about the heart. And honestly, I wonder if one of God's purpose, and I, I, I'm very slow to assign purpose to something as devastating as COVID-19, so forgive me for uh, venturing into this space. But I wonder if one of the things that God is hoping to form in his church is a kind of a check on our heart. Have you been going through the motions of Christianity without allowing your heart to be transformed? Well, what if you have a season where some of those rhythms and motions are taken away from you? How's your heart doing? Is my heart captivated by faith in Jesus? Can you say honestly, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? Can you say that? And believe it? Like in your hearts, do you wake up and you say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? Is there something in you like Moses that just wants to say, God, show me your glory. Show it to me. I want it more than anything. Is that the way your heart beats? Is there something inside of you that loves God's law and his commandments? You just want to honor them because you love the king and you say, man, I want to know every one of your laws, every one of your statutes, and I want to live a life that honors those, that other people look in my life and they say, he's honoring God. Can you say like the psalmist in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Come on, can you say that? In the way of your law, I delight as much as all all wealth that you could possibly offer me? Do you find your heart longing to get to know God, to meet with him in the quiet place, to meet with him in prayer? Does your heart from time to time just sit back in awe and wonder at all the things God has done in your life to bring you to this place right now? What you are at your heart is just as important, if not more important, than the things you do And those who are blessed by God are pure in heart. Now, what does purity mean? Purity has a couple meanings. One of them is it means without hypocrisy. It means single-mindedly, wholly, without deviation. Paul is saying that those who are blessed are those whose hearts are not divided. Those who are blessed are those who have hearts that are not living with one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God, and just trying to skate by and see how it goes with their life. That won't get you much blessing in life. Blessed are the pure in heart. Psalm 86 verse 11 says, Unite my heart to fear your name. Interesting verse. Unite my heart. You you picture the inner being of this man split apart. And he's saying, God, God, bring it back together. I I don't want to be divided anymore. I don't want to have one foot in this world. I know my motivations. I know the way I'm wired. I know that I have temptations that I chase after. I know that sometimes my heart is not pure. And the psalmist says, unite it again. Because that's the most important thing in my life. How many of you are familiar with a divided heart? Feeling that conviction even right now as you're watching this. You want just enough of God to be a part of the church, but not enough to surrender your whole life to. You want just enough of Christianity to feel like you're part of something good, but not enough to truly pour your life out as an offering on the sacrifice and service of others, like Paul would say. You want just enough of God to hopefully squeeze into heaven, but not enough to be disliked or persecuted for his name. God forbid you put your stake in the ground and you say what you stand for. You want just enough to be a part of the church, but not enough to become a part of the fabric of the church, 
to commit yourself to deep and meaningful relationship because that would require your time. That would require you to saying no to a whole bunch of hobbies in order to say yes to the family of God. You want just enough of Christianity to pray, but you don't necessarily want to structure your life around prayer and depend on it. You want to be filled by the Spirit, but you don't really want to take action on what the Spirit says to you because sometimes people who do that are considered weird in the eyes of culture. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart. Unite my heart, O God. Help me to be undivided in my attention I give you. The term purity has a second meaning to it. Pure can also mean to be clean or without defilement. That's usually the way we think of the word purity. When we think about the categories of clean and unclean in the Bible, we think of God's commandments. And God has given us many commandments in Scripture. Many laws and statutes to tell us how to live our life. And when we break those laws, literally it's like tarnish on us. We're just filling ourselves with dirt and we become impure. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then hear these words, and such were some of you. And then what does he say? But you were washed. Do you hear that language? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. To, uh, to have a pure heart before God is to accept the good news of the gospel. There's two parts to the gospel. And the first part is that Jesus cleanses wicked hearts like ours. Remember the very first beatitude is that we have to recognize we're poor in spirit. That's to recognize that the level of the sin that we have with us, our level of rebellion to God is worthy of separation from God and only a free gift of grace offered to us by Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, when he shed his blood on the cross in order to forgive you of your sins, only that level of grace. God, the, the second person of the Trinity, taking your place on the cross, could possibly forgive your sins. And what he does is it's like soap on our souls. He cleanses us. It purifies us. That's the first part of the gospel. And every person has to make a choice. If they desire to be pure in heart, you're not going to earn it on yourself. You won't cleanse yourself. You've got to receive that cleansing from Jesus. But the good news goes further than that. It's not just that he purifies your heart. It's that he rips your old heart out and he performs heart surgery on you and he gives you a new heart that then desires to live a pure life before God. See, he purifies the heart, he cleanses your heart, and then he sets your heart on a new passion to desire to live out God's laws and God's commands. Listen to the, old, the way the old prophet said it, Ezekiel chapter 36. He's prophesying about what will happen when the Messiah comes. That's Jesus, and this is well before the Messiah. Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You hear that last part? Once he gives you a new heart, he will cause you to walk in his statutes and he will cause you to be very careful to obey his law. See, the gospel renews you. 
Not only does Jesus purify your heart by washing all of your stains, past, present, and future, thereby making you clean, but he resets your heart and causes you to desire to walk in the ways of Christ. Now let's be really real for a moment. In modern evangelicalism, we don't talk about that enough. Oftentimes, Christianity, you know, the message that you hear is this. If you just believe in Jesus, you basically can go on living any life you want as long as you say your faith in Jesus. I, I, I believe in Jesus, so I'm forgiven for everything. In one sense, it's true. That's great news. Hallelujah. Yes and amen. You put your faith in Jesus... You're forgiven, even for the most vile and wicked sins. I mean, the people we're going to see in heaven one day, guys, you're going to say, how did you get in here? And, and then they're going to say, because I believed in Jesus. That's how I got in here. I believed in Jesus and he cleansed me from my sin. But what happens when you believe in Jesus is that he renews your spirit to desire to follow his commands. If there's no desire in you to actually live according to his statutes and his laws... Did he actually purify your heart yet? Or are you still up on that cliff's edge looking over with two feet firmly planted in the old world, just sticking your finger into Christianity, pretending like you're standing in the middle of it? Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus wants your whole heart. A purified heart desires purified living. And he says, for they shall see God. Now that has two parts to it. And I've said this almost every beatitude that I've preached on yet. The second half of it has two parts to it. What does it mean to see God? Well, in one sense, you see God every day as a Christian, don't you? The Christian is the one who lives almost with a whole new set of lenses over their eyes. It's like you've been going through life your whole life, and, but without Christ, and you've been doing all these actions, and you've been living your life, going to work, in your relationships that you're in, and it's like you had blinders over your eyes, but then you accept Jesus, and only a Christian would be able to say this, they accept Jesus, and the blinders get lifted off, and all of a sudden you do all those same things you used to do, but you see God everywhere. Isn't that true, Christian? You look out at nature, and you used to love nature, you used to love the stars, and you'd have a sense of maybe even divinity about the stars, but now, now when you see the stars, you can't help but be brought to the triune God of Scripture, and you see it for what they really mean. You see, you go to work, and, and you see your work as that which was gifted to you by God as a glorious labor unto kingdom ends. You see relationships and you see God working. You see history unfolding and you see the fingerprint of God just forming history as it unfolds towards its glorious destination, the kingdom in its full. See, the Christian is the one who lives every day with this new set of eyes saying, I see God everywhere where I didn't see him before. And the the person who's not a Christian can't quite understand it. They understand it maybe in general terms, but the Christian has new eyes to see what they didn't see before. But to see God also has a future dynamic to it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Remember 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, speaking of the future, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Let me read to you a quote from Pastor John Piper. Sometimes... Piper just has a way of putting things in poetry that resonates so powerfully. He says, virtually all of our spiritual sight in this life is mediated to us through the word of God or the work of God in providence. We see images of God, images and reflections of his glory. 
we hear echoes and reverberations of His voice. But there will come a day when God Himself will dwell among us. His glory will no longer be inferred from lightning and mountains and roaring seas and constellations of stars. Instead, our experience of Him will be direct. His glory will be the very light in which we move. That's Revelation 21-23. And the beauty of His holiness will be tasted directly like honey on the tongue. You see, to see God is to be admitted directly into his presence and to see his face, that place where even Moses in the Old Testament could not go because the Messiah had not yet come. But good news, Christian, Jesus has come, which means one day you will be admitted into the presence where Moses could not go. To see God is to have every wound of your heart finally and fully healed. Fully No remainder of it. There's nothing remaining to be healed because you're in the presence of that which saturates every part of you. To see God is to be known deeper than you know yourself and to have God love you with a love that you can never create on your own or even dream up. When we get to heaven, when we see Christ face to face, we will be overwhelmed by the way he loves us. To see God is the greatest ambition any man or woman could ever create for themselves. There is no higher purpose. Any created purpose outside of seeing God is just a sub-purpose in life. It all falls short of that glory. To see God is to be finally rid of any shadow or shade of darkness in your soul. To no longer be on the journey of becoming more like Christ, but to stand in your glorified self and to look back on the past and to know that you are finally at what you were made to be. You finally arrived in his glory. To see God will be to be eternally free. Free for worship. Free for life everlasting. Free for full relationships with each other. Remember, heaven's going to be a place here in this geographical space where you have relationships and friendships and meals and you go places and it will be full and you will see God. That's what you were made for. And we taste of it in part now and we will experience it in full then. I pray that each person watching this will make a decision of where they stand. God forbid that you waste too much of your life with two feet in this world, glimpsing over at what Jesus offers you, and never saying, I surrender to the King. And to say, I surrender to Jesus, is to do more than just give lip service to Christianity. The first sermons that were preached in the New Testament, the message that was given was repent, it was turn. It was turned from the way you've been living. That was a way of an unpurified heart. Turn from that way. Stop living that way. And enter fully. Immerse yourself fully under the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And he'll give you a new heart. Wherever you're watching this today, and whatever your journey has been to get to this place right now, this moment, my heart for you is that if you've been living with one foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom of God, I pray that you would release yourself from that old way of life that you would allow Jesus to pull you from that and to just rip you two feet in, jump right into the deep end of the pool and let that love come over you like you've never experienced before. Because I'm telling you what, the thing that stops you from doing that is fear that you're going to regret it. But no person who's ever jumped two feet into that deep end of that pool of Christ has ever regretted it. It's overwhelming to the soul. May this be the day that you take one foot out of this world and put two feet in the world of the kingdom of Christ, 
Only Christ can do that in your heart. Only He can soften you. Only He can pull you in. May you be pure in heart in order that you might see God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your Beatitudes. I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. I thank you for sending Christ. Lord, we need you as much today as we've ever needed you. In this upside-down, crazy world we live in, we want to see it set right side up. And the only way to do that is to see people come into saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus, start with us. Renew our souls. Create in us a right heart today. Unite our hearts so we're not divided anymore. Let us live with one holy ambition to see Jesus' kingdom established everywhere we go. May we throw off the things of this world. Only you can do that in your life, in our life, God. So we're asking you in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.